Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hi there. Welcome back to Living Through It. I'm Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, your host. This week, we're welcoming Drew Dixon to the podcast. Drew was the subject of the documentary film On the Record, which premiered at Sundance Film Festival in 2020. That documentary addresses allegations of sexual assault and abuse by Russell Simmons in the hip hop industry over decades. Drew was one of the primary accusers first profiled in the New York Times piece that went public concerning allegations of sexual assault by Russell Simmons against a multitude of Black women. And the film itself profiled the journey that Drew took through the revelation of those allegations and the months after. Quick content warning, we do spend some time in this podcast talking about issues of sexual assault and abuse. If this is not the moment for you to listen into a podcast on those topics, no worries. We completely understand, and we will see you next week. If, however, you choose to listen in, and this raises any concerns or questions for you, please remember that the National Sexual Assault Hotline is available 24-7, and the number to reach that hotline is 800-656-HOPE. Again, that's 800-656-HOPE. And now, here's this week's interview. Okay, and welcome back to Living Through It, where I am joined today by the incredible heroine who goes by the name of Drew Dixon. Um, Drew and I have gotten to know each other a little bit over the last couple of years. And um, for those of you who don't know, Drew is profiled in the documentary film On the Record, where um, the focus of the film, for those who haven't seen it, is the sexual violence of Russell Simmons, of which uh, Drew unfortunately was a victim. And the story itself is a fascinating snapshot of a moment in the Me Too movement um, around the intersection of black blackness and womanhood and sexual violence. And I'm just so honored to have Drew here. Um, her, her career is storied. For those of you who don't know, She's the person who put Mary J. Blige and Method Man together on their infamous classic hit, which I was Uh listening to yesterday. All I Need to Get By, (laughs) uh, executive producer of the soundtrack for the show, long history as a music producer. Um, And one of the things that is so fascinating about the film on the record is your trajectory Mm -hmm. out of music as a result of what happened to you and then your return to your creativity as you began the process of healing. So welcome. I'm so Thank glad you're here. So and that we're having- it's so wonderful to be here. I'm so grateful for that very kind introduction and I'm grateful for all of your work and you inspire me on Twitter and just in the world. And I'm 
just so pleased to be here. Can't wait to talk with you more about all of these issues. Yeah, it's it's such an honor. But let's start with where we are now. You know, On the Record premiered at Sundance uh, right before the pandemic, yep. January of 2020. It's been, it's been two and a half years now, and so much has changed and so much hasn't. Mm. I'm interested in, uh, you know, we see in the film the moment where the New York Times story breaks about mm-hmm. yourself and two other women going right. to the New York Times and telling the story of your sexual assaults. Right. Um, and you know, there's there's a there's a moment that broke my heart knowing you of you sitting there weeping in a bodega mm. over the the New York Times as the story broke. Right. Um, that was long before the film, um, mm-hmm. several years before the film, and now yeah. um, the film came out in 2020. And I'm I'm interested to hear what's the trajectory been for you since the film came out. Wow. Well, you know. The, the film, obviously, as you mentioned, premiered at Sundance in January of 2020, but then it came out on HBO Max on May 27th, 2020. And as it happens, it came out two days after the heartbreaking and racist murder of George Floyd. So the film emerged in the context of this very important conversation about extrajudicial killings of Black people in general, and in particular of this Black man. And this conversation that really gripped the globe about this long overdue reckoning in terms of the profiling and just the sort of uh, targeting of of Black, innocent Black people, and again, in particular, Black men. Um, So it was a very complicated environment in which to have the conversation that is already a tricky conversation and a nuanced conversation about being a black woman who's a survivor of sexual violence. Sexual violence in all communities is overwhelmingly intraracial, right? The vast majority of abusers are people that the victim knows. And so then by definition, the vast majority of cases of sexual violence happen within racial groups, right? So for Black women, we find ourselves often in a situation where the abuser is somebody who exists in our own community and our community is already targeted and our men are in particular vilified and characterized unfairly as hypersexual predators. And so that's something you grow up with as a Black person, right? You're aware of that. As a Black woman, I was very aware of that my whole entire life. And so the conversation that we're trying to have and on the record about walking that line between advocating for yourself as a woman and as a human being who has a right to sort of safety and dignity, but also having that conversation about your abuser who happens to be a black man um, was already very fraught. And then to have it in that frame was even harder to be completely honest with you. And then to have it in a pandemic um, where I was doing interviews you know, five, six, seven interviews a day in my living room in Brooklyn, New York, about on the record, talking about rape, trying to really be very precise and rigorous about Russell Simmons is a rapist. That is one specific thing that I can speak to from my own personal experience. And let's isolate that from this broader conversation about, you know, the way Black men are unfairly targeted, villainized, and mischaracterized in a pandemic, on Zooms, you know, and then I would shut my computer and like clap for healthcare workers at seven. It was a tough time and a tough way in which to navigate an already complicated 
sort of overlapping sort of Venn diagram of discussions. Nonetheless, I'm super grateful that the movie even got to HBO Max and even made its way onto as many sort of television screens and phones and whatever else, you know, it did in America and around the world. I feel very privileged to be in a position to even have this conversation and to tell my story. Um, but it was a very rocky road and a very complicated environment in which to unpack already complicated issues. So that's how it entered the world. And it sort of still lingers in the world, right? In that frame, you know, we're still not totally post-pandemic. You know, we'd love to say we are, but we're not really post-pandemic. We're certainly not post, you know, um, the conversation that we need to have and the reckoning we need to have about white supremacy, about sort of um, the need to really evaluate policing and the targeting of black people in our country and around the world. So we're not on the other side of either one of those things really. And so the movie is sort of still sitting there um, finding people and I hope reaching people, but the conversation I think is still pretty embryonic in my opinion, the conversation about black women and our unique vulnerability to sexual violence and the way we don't always get a chance to even be heard at the other side of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I found so profound about the film is that is the conversation about in the early parts of the film about does me too even belong to us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So many of the black women journalists, music executives, advocates who are interviewed in the film alongside you make this point of do, you know, do black women really have a voice in Me Too? And what does Me Too really look like for black women? One of the things that really struck me as somebody who is also a survivor of sexual violence and who took my abuser to court actually at a very young age. Mm. Uh, and, and I know both sides of that coin, right? Like, you know, it, uh, you and I have a lot in common in this way because you, we see the importance of taking back our power by speaking the truth of it and simultaneously all the things that go along with that. One of the things that really struck me in the context of the difference though, it was how many of the black women who were interviewed in on the record had been carrying around what had been done to them Mm. at the hands of Russell Simmons for decades without Mm. telling anyone or only telling Mm. a very limited number of people. You at one point in the film, make this incredibly powerful point of, I don't want to hurt the culture, right? He's the the godfather of hip hop and I love the culture. And so, um, you know, I think that one of the things that the film does so well is it makes clear the ways in which the burdens on black women speaking the truth about sexual violence are far more complex than Mm. they are for white women. Um, And and they're hard enough for us, right? Um, So I want to acknowledge that and also say that um, I can't imagine the internal fraught discussions that, Mm. you know, we see some of this in the film, but that really went on for you about how to come forward and whether to go on the record and all of that. Well, thank you. And um, thank you for your courage and speaking out about your experience and the courage it took, I can't imagine, to come forward and to pursue sort of legal um, recourse, that's huge. And I admire you for that in addition to so many other reasons. You know, but yes, I I think that not only is it harder for us as black women to come forward and not only do so many more of us carry the secret, I think even um, than sort of other victims sort of in, in other communities because we know that our men are targeted 
and particular targeted in this way. I mean, lynching is really, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that was absolutely the basis, frankly, was false yep. accusations of sexual violence. Emmett Till perpetrated as a prime Emmett example. Till, right? The Central Park Five, right? Yep. So um, there's that piece. But even before you get to the piece of coming forward, there's the piece of feeling validated and even, you know, feeling uh, sort of the agency around, can I be victimized? Can I be this, the, you know, again, I, I, I've said it in other forms where, you know, the story of black women doesn't begin on a pedestal. It begins on a slave auction block. Yep. So we don't even enter the conversation with any expectation that our virtue is valued, that our virtue is real, that our virtue is seen. The average age of black women in the Atlantic slave trade is 15. Those are girls and they were all raped systematically. It was par for the course. It was a good business decision to rape a black woman or a girl for hundreds of years in this country. And so in order to tolerate that as a society, what do you have to do? You have to convince yourself that we aren't human. We aren't worthy. We have no inherent dignity. Look at the way Makia Bryant is perceived, right? The young woman who was killed when she called the police herself to seek court, right? And so there's a hurdle that even before the hurdle of coming forward, there's the hurdle of having compassion for yourself. As a black woman, you grew up in a society you know, that frames you as less than, I mean, you know, there's the doll test. You can go back to the blue eyed, blonde haired dolls, right? To the brown skinned dolls, right? I mean, this notion that we aren't even really pure and fragile and vulnerable and worthy is something that we internalize as black women and girls from the gate, right? And so, and the fact that we aren't entitled to boundaries around our sexual agency is something that is a legacy of the institution of slavery and unfortunately internalized within our own communities and internalized in society at large, the hypersexualization of black women. So there's first, am I a victim? Do I even have an, a right to feel like sort of the agency around being harmed? And then there's coming forward. Um, and then there's also sort of one thing I talk about is I see a lot of things through the frame of white supremacy and then also yep. the toxic patriarchy. So it's like, I think yep. of Amy Cooper, the bird watcher who called the police, she was able to call the police and the cavalry came because she was calling the police on a black male bird watcher. But if Amy Cooper called the police because a white man had sexually assaulted her, I think she might've had a very different experience. So it's all about where you are in terms of how you're challenging the status quo. And as black women, we're at the very bottom of this hierarchy and we have no forum to turn to. So that's sort of the hurdle and the layers and, and, sort of what I'm hoping we can have a conversation about in order to move beyond it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the intersection of white supremacy around all these issues and policing and justice are um, are incredibly important. And I will just say that, you know, there is a moment in the film where you're talking about your, your trip to Ghana as mm. a teenager. Yeah. Um, and about what happened um, in the in the castle that was the launching point for the Middle Passage, right. the sexual victimization of girls, the separation of men and women, the murder of men who tried to defend the women who were there from sexual violence right. and how that is that's a foundational moment for blackness in America. And I um, I found it so profound and so moving and also just so visceral. Right. Um, so I understand mm. it. And I think that, you know, the the question that um, that I find so hard about all of this, because it's so obvious to me, probably, um, is this question of like, well, why wouldn't you go to the police? Right. Why wouldn't you report this? And I think that anybody who's not looking at 
the aftermath of sexual violence against women, let alone against black women and other women of color in the context of how policing weaponizes white supremacy (laughs) really needs to do a little bit of a self-check. Because, you know, I I think there's no safety in any of those mechanisms, right? Mm -hmm. There wasn't even safety for me coming forward, you know, when I tried uh, with, you know, my cases was a civil case, but I mean, like statutes of limitations had expired and it was only two years since the last time something had happened to me. Um, And even then, you know, you have to look at it through the lens of, of how many black women have been victimized by policing. So mm-hmm. it's an incredibly layered and complex discussion. And I agree with you. It's, it is nascent. You know, we've barely touched on this. That's one Very of the reasons nice. why I wanted to have you on in the early days of this podcast, honestly, is because it mm-hmm. touches on so many critical issues right now that, that black women in particular are facing. Well, one of the interesting things is that when I first came forward, you know, and I'm people say don't read the comments, but I can't resist reading the comments because I think I learned from the comments, you know, um, frankly, even some painful comments. But one of the things that a lot of black men were saying when I first came forward was, you know, why didn't you call the police? Like, you know, now you want to cry rape, you didn't call the police. And it was just sort of like, wow, okay, the same police who just kill us like indiscriminately. That's, 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 that's your God. (laughs) Like that's your arbiter of my veracity. Like, you know, you should know more than anyone that that we can't trust them. And now that's, that's, that's who you are holding as like the standard for me. You think that's a a place where I could have had a fair forum, a fair sort of, that would have been a, a great way to address what happened with me and a black man, like in, in America. And this was, I was, I was raped two weeks after OJ was, uh, acquitted and one week before the million man march right so i'm living in this frame where i'm like very clear about sort of how this could have been weaponized in a way that would have harmed so many more people than just me in my yeah. community black people who yeah. i love and i wasn't going to do that yeah i mean it's it, it also speaks to a larger conversation about you know defunding and the reallocation of resources and some things that i have just been Um, Gosh, I have just been thinking about so much. Um, You know, I think that that one of the things that that I've thought about a lot since my experience and that your experience certainly kicks up for me are the way in which we need community resources that are directed toward sexual assault that are separate and apart from the criminal justice system. Um, And, you know, when you think about how this could be handled so differently, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of initial response, in terms of decision-making to prosecute or arrest, in terms of how it's framed out, how rape kits are handled, how, you know, all of this is just ripe for so much change. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, uh, it, I see as missing in major media discussions about defund is all the good that could be done with that money. You, um, you know, right. reallocating the resources and particularly in contexts of interpersonal violence and sexual violence, that to me is very front and center in, in, uh, in what could be just so vastly improved with an understanding of the intersectional nature of the way policing functions right now. Um, right. A lot more to be said there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, I definitely um, feel strongly about the supporting services that could be just better sort of positioned to address the kind of issues that emerge around sexual violence, sexual assault, outcry, reporting a crime, all of that, Record, reporting an assault. I just think, yeah, there's just a huge, there's a, I mean, the, the sort of optimistic way to look at it is there's a tons of 
opportunity if we invest in those kinds of services. And yep. I think that's something that is, is definitely missing from the sort of me too, post me too conversation. Where do we put the dollars to sort of make a society that can absorb these stories? And, and, you know, create justice and equity and everything else, right? Like to a greater extent. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about where I don't like to say we're in a post Me Too era because it's not like, you know, anything has really dramatically changed. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about these redemption arcs that we're seeing a little bit now um, and particularly redemption arcs without accountability, because I see a difference It depends on what we're talking about, honestly. Every case, I think, is different. But I see a very big difference uh, right now between men who want to engage in conversations about uh, male violence, about sexual violence, and men who don't, and particularly men who don't actually take any accountability and want to reemerge as though nothing has happened. Um, You know, I, I think one of the things that was so disturbing to me getting ready for this interview was seeing how Russell Simmons has sort of returned to high society to some extent, has shown up at certain events in the Hamptons, yeah. notwithstanding the fact that he fled to Bali to, to avoid potential criminal accountability. Right. Uh, and how others have, there have been some eyebrows raised to be sure, but at, at, you know, some others have welcomed him back with open arms. That's gotta be a hard thing. Yeah. I mean, we're 30 years out from Anita Hill um, and we are, what are we three, four years out, three years out from Kristen Blasey Ford um, mm-hmm. and both of their sort of accused perpetrators are sitting in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court that just rolled back Roe v. Wade, right? So what is the message? I mean, it's beyond a message and the implications, the real profound real life implications of enabling these men to sort of proceed un unsort of mitigated in terms of sort of taking any accountability. Um, those are obviously two incredibly sort of high profile significant ways, but the message it's sending when Russell Simmons is welcomed back and in, back into polite society for any woman sitting in that room and those parties following it on social media, who's a victim, maybe not of somebody famous, but maybe of, you know, somebody in her school or her church or her synagogue or her sports team or her family or whatever is chilling. I promise you it was chilling to me 30 years ago and it will be chilling to the next, we're gonna hear stories in 25, 30 years about people who saw the way this went down with Russell Simmons and didn't come forward. And that is heartbreaking to me. That is one one of the reasons I fought so hard um, for this movie is because I didn't want 25 years more of women to have the experience I had following Anita Hill, you know, uh, following Desiree Washington, frankly, which I talk about in the film, to feel like nobody cares, nobody really mm-hmm. cares. And um, so I'm all for rehabilitation and accountability if there is real contrition and if yep. there isn't a pattern of sort of serial, predatory, real sort of behavior with real evil intent. If there was somebody who, I mean, I don't know, like accidentally had a Zoom camera and oh my God, we didn't need to see that. Look, that's not great. But if, and I'm not saying that person is contrite. Yeah. I don't know enough about that story. <laughs> but if they're not, that's a separate issue. But if there's some contrition and there's some sort of acknowledgement of, okay, whatever, that was probably like felt a little bit like an assault, or maybe I did engage in something that was over the line, but I'm learning, I'm evolving. As society evolves, we have to sort of give people a little grace to catch up with society as we become more sort of refined and nuanced and the way we understand these boundaries, which is a 
important. We got to give people a little chance to catch up if they're not out there just being real sort of, you know, again, calculated predators. I do believe there needs to be room for redemption and conversations and about coming back. But for people that are not contrite, for people that have yeah. just been like a wake of, of, of lives and souls and careers that they destroyed, that they just can't be welcomed back in. I mean, it's just like, yeah, those of us who consider ourselves allies and good guys, come on, have a backbone, have a spine, set a standard, have a yeah. higher bar. Yep. And I will just say, you know, for me, the person who, um, who victimized me, I, I, one of the reasons why I went after him in civil court was because I wanted him to not be able to do to others what he had done to me. And unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, I have all sorts of stories I could tell about the justice system in this regard. There were some consequences to him, but he was not stopped. Mm. Uh, and I, I found out 25 years later that there were other mm. 15, 16 year old girls, same story, mm. like a swath, right. Um, wow. Of folks in his wake. And so um, to me, you know, it's funny because we talk about issues of uh, accountability and we talk about issues of interpersonal violence. And when we, when we, when you deal with people who are dealing with creative nonviolent strategies, there are conversations about the way in which whole societal structures have to shift honestly, in order for us to do it differently. Mm. Um, you know, and at the same time, I do want to give, <laughs> I do want to give some credit to the abolitionists who are really trying, who are really out there doing the work of wanting to reform the conditions that create sexual violence in the first place mm -hmm. with the understanding of course, that it's like a centuries long endeavor. It's a centuries um, right. Yeah. But I'm with you on all of this. And I think one of the things that I find just so shocking is that there are so many men out there who have engaged in predatory behavior who think, okay, I'm going to take a pause for like two, three years, and then I'm just going to show back up and it's going to be like nothing happened when, you know, one of the things that, that you say at the very end of the film is I'm the crime scene. My life is a crime scene. And I think a lot about that moment also in the context of you know, the experiences of anyone who's experienced sexual violence, because it deviates you from the the course of your life, right? right. You don't get that back. You don't get um, that Even back. with healing, you don't get it back. Right. And I mean, I'm not, I mean, I feel, you know, I'm optimistic about my future. I feel that I have a purpose. I believe we all have a purpose. I believe I have to accept the fact that perhaps this was part of the path that's going to get me to my purpose. Um, so I'm not, when I say my life is a crime scene, I don't say that sort of wringing my hands and hanging my head low, but it it absolutely changed the trajectory of my life, but also saying me too has changed the trajectory of my life and has unlocked me. And so, you know, I, I guess one more thing about the question though of yeah. the rehabilitation and, you know, and this is something I think about as a black woman, I experience all of these things sort of in two ways at the same time you know, it reminds me of this conversation about CRT and, you know, talking, teaching people real American history and sort of wanting to skip past that and think we're ever going to be free. We're ever going to be okay as a society. So in the same way that I want men who are abusers, like real abusers to be held accountable, you know, I would like for America to be held accountable for its racist history and its ongoing, the, the sort of, it's in the DNA. We're not gonna ever, we're gonna constantly have the MAGAs. They're just gonna have new names. They have the KKK now, we got the MAGAs. And um, as somebody who occupies the world as both 
a black person and as a woman and as a survivor, I see the parallels between the need to have this conversation about real American history that makes space for us to all feel valued here. And that has been expressed not only in the conversations about CRT, but also about the Confederate statues that people are pulling down so that these people that really have been idolized, platformed, and lionized for abusing my ancestors, those statues need to come down. And in the same way that I want those Confederate statues to come down for us as Black people, I want Russell Simmons to come off of his pedestal as a survivor. And I want us to create safe spaces culturally for women um, and, and victims in particular, and victims of all genders and gender identities to feel like we aren't platforming and lionizing predators. And until those Confederate statues come down and until Russell Simmons is no longer invited to parties in the Hamptons, this cycle of violence and abuse will continue. And um, we will have to have these conversations again in 20 years and 25 years. There'll be a new fascist movement if we don't teach CRT in the schools. And there will be a new you know, wave of revelations about men who've been abusing unchecked um, women primarily, but not only women, because we didn't really address this. We didn't have the reckoning that Me Too gave us the opportunity to have or the reckoning that BLM gave us the opportunity to have if we just skip past it and just take two years off and we march for a minute and we say hashtag Me Too for a minute. And then we just sort of invite everybody back in and keep on keeping on we're just gonna have these same issues and we're gonna have more victims and we're gonna have more harm done. And I'm interested in harm reduction and breaking the cycle of all of these different kinds of systemic abuses. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is so key to me is you can't have accountability without the truth, right? Like one of the things that is so obvious here is that until there's actual truth telling and you know real accountability that involves actual truth telling, you can't actually get to justice. You know, the, everything is necessarily connected. And so to me, the other primary issue here, you know, when we're talking about the ways in which uh, we don't get to have conversations around the true history of America, uh, where Confederate soldiers are still lionized, despite the fact that they're the 19th century version of insurrectionists, right. uh, what we end right. up with is history repeating itself. And right. more than that, opportunities for exploitation by fascism and fascists uh, to create further violence. Um, so yeah, I'm completely with you. I think the truth-telling aspect of it is so important. And so is the admission of accountability. Like how can you have accountability if you haven't admitted that you've done anything wrong? That's that it. Do it doesn't exist. It doesn't That's exist. It. What you're asking for is absolution without responsibility and change. So um, so I'm, I'm with you on all of that. I mean, and I, I think that one of the key Questions that I have, you know, in the in the emergence of from the initial wave of Me Too and you know what has happened and what hasn't happened um, is how we can work to end cultures of silence and complicity. Mm. You know, one of the things that I'm I'm particularly worried about right now is that it's actually not just silence and complicity, it's also like the weaponization of social media against victims who come forward. We have more than a few examples of that in yeah. current events. Yeah. Uh, we have like active dehumanization of victims of interpersonal violence on Twitter and elsewhere. And yeah. 
And so, you know, I think that one of the opportunities that I had hoped Me Too would present would be for us to start actually affirmatively working mm. to end silence and complicity. Um, and I'm wondering how you feel about that, you know, again, two and a half years on from the film's first emergence, because I will tell you that I don't, I feel like part of what is happening is that because it's not just about revelation anymore, it's about revelation and backlash, mm. um, that, that we're not, we're seeing all these institutions. And by the way, I see parallels with the George Floyd rebellion in this as well, where all of a sudden there was a big commitment to justice and, you know, a, a response and support of Black Lives Matter and support of women who had been victimized. And, and here we are two years on and what, how much has really changed right. those corporations that, you know, were turning their Instagram to black. Have they actually done anything right. to save lives, to, right. to, to preserve black life in America? Are we yeah. actually seeing constructive efforts to, you know, for instance, not give money to overtly racist or, or not so overtly racist candidates? Um, right. You know, are we seeing real change and, and what can we do to foster that? Right. Well, it is concerning um, the disinformation sort of piece of post Me Too, post BLM or sort of, you know, I guess five years out from Me Too. You know, I think one of the beauties of the Me Too movement is that we were able to disintermediate mainstream media and just tell our stories with a hashtag. And that's really how it became possible for us to come forward and find each other and create this movement that then obviously the most high profile, profile stories ended up in the New York Times or the New Yorker or in other sort of outlets where they were sort of more rigorously vetted and reported. But the finding of each other and the finding of community and the sort of uh, pressure really was the, uh, uh, mobilized from the ground up leveraging the possibility to aggregate our voices on social media. Um, unfortunately, that has now been um, tainted by, I mean, there was an article I just read recently about the Women's March and how Russian disinformation was used to foment dissension within the Women's March and in, including using race as a wedge issue. And so, and that certainly happens you know, it's happening with BLM. And so I think it's really that much more important for people like you to have podcasts like this one and conversations like this one that keep pushing us forward and keep identifying people. You know, I'm honored to be among one of the people you identified to have conversations that keep us honest and keep the bar high and keep it rigorous and keep it moving forward. Because I think just trusting social media to kind of organically um, nurture that is no longer possible because there are so many sophisticated actors um, infiltrating social media with hashtags and other sort of issues that are already ripe um, within the culture. Obviously, there's very easy fault lines to identify in the sort of feminist movement, um, the women's rights movement, the Me Too movement along the lines of race where our experiences are not aligned exactly. And so there is a natural opportunity. There's a, there's a necessary conversation around that. There's also a natural opportunity to exploit that. You know, the yes. transgender sort of conversation within the women's rights movement, all of these things have been a real important conversations we need to keep having about how we think about what solidarity looks like and what 
um, the movement, you know, how it's best served, but then these issues are, are exploited by nefarious actors. And so again, I guess my answer is what you're doing is so key because it keeps us sort of leveling up, having the conversation at a rigorous level in a rigorous way um, and just keep finding each other and keep, that's why I really do try to amplify people I believe in on Twitter. I mean, it's not just for fun. I mean, I do get a lot of, have a lot of fun on Twitter for sure, but I also do try to find people in conversations, even if I don't have the answer, like I just retweet it, like go, let's talk about this, you know? And I think it's important. I think it's still powerful and I think it's still necessary. We have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. Yeah. And I will just say that I think there's a lot more work that white women just generally need to be doing on issues of internalized white supremacy and sexism, because to me, you know, that's the one thing that, you know, I see how it's exploited so easily. Mm. I think if you're not versed and self-aware enough to know how white supremacy lives in you, Mm. you can fall prey to the idea that there should be division, right? You know, like bodily autonomy, matters for everyone, whether you are a woman, a non-binary person, a trans person, the ability to make decisions about your own body, for instance, cross all those lines. And if we're not able to be in solidarity with one another around those kind of basic issues, because someone's telling you that you're going to lose if somebody else wins, even if it's a lie, that becomes the point of really easy exploitation. So I completely agree with you. And I also think that, you know, one of the things that we just have to do is build relationships offline. You know, even you and I met on Twitter, but, you know, we're sitting here having this conversation because when you're face to face with people and you're talking about really tough issues, you find the common ground, right? Mm -hmm. And if we're not all together right now, pushing back against forces of division that are designed to exploit for the sake of creating violence and power for the few at the expense of the many, we all lose, right? So- So to me, that's that's a big chunk of um, of why it's so important for us to be having these conversations and to be continuing to hold ourselves accountable to them and to the people that we know and love. Um, I really do think it's important for all of us to examine. First of all, what you said as a white woman, I appreciate it's received, it's heard, it's appreciated. Thank you. And I think it's important for all of us to acknowledge our privilege. You know, ableism is really significant when it when the issue of sexual violence comes up. Disabled people are much more likely to be victimized. Um, socioeconomic dynamics. You know, sexual violence is about power. Sexual violence and sexual harassment are about abuses of power. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that all of us. One of the reasons I said me too, and one of the reasons I agreed to be in the documentary is that I understand that as a black woman. I navigate the world in a way with more freedom and autonomy than other black women for a number of reasons um, that I felt I had a responsibility to sort of, you know, uh, acknowledge when I sort of thought about my own risk and vulnerability and that my risk is relative to others less and my vulnerability is, is greater than others, but less than others. And therefore, I wanted to try to be helpful in having this conversation, in particular about Black women. Um, and so, yeah, I think that one of the things that is helpful for me when I look at things through the lens of both white supremacy and toxic patriarchy is I sort of think about where do I fall, where do we fall, and how do we move forward, understanding that that's the frame that is really crippling all of us. That's yes. the frame, it's crippling even those 
who believe they're winning. Yes. And if we examine that, I think that's kind of the key to moving forward. Absolutely. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you the three questions we ask everyone at the end of our interviews. Um, so what keeps you going? What keeps me going is that I believe I am on the right track and I am honoring the truth and justice and goodness. And I'm moving forward from a place of good intention. And I feel like if I wake up every day and I do that, I will put a life together that I can be proud of. And that is what keeps me going. Love it. Um, what are the most pressing issues in your view that need our attention right now? So I believe that this may seem like perhaps an odd sort of departure from this conversation about sexual violence, but I really think democracy. I think that we have to really, none of these conversations will even be possible in a society that isn't free. And for all of my criticisms of our society and many features of it and the history of it and all of that, you know, we get to have this conversation and to be critical of our country and of the people in power and the structure because it is a democracy and it's a flawed democracy. And it's always been a democracy that was born in the context of an apartheid state. So let's be really clear about that. America started out as an apartheid state before it even thought about being a democracy. And even then the democracy was limited in many, many, many problematic ways. But hey, let's hang on to it and let's make it better. And right now um, we face the real possibility of losing what we have and we can't afford that. And the most vulnerable among us can least afford it. And so I think it's very important that we really fight for this democracy and take it seriously because I think it's in real danger. I could not agree more. I think that, you know, and it all fits together, right? Because Toxic patriarchy and white supremacy are weaponizing difference for the sake of creating autocracy and ending democracy. And so all of these things are linked. Um, It's one reason why all of this kind of cross-identity solidarity that we've been talking about is, to me, so critical. Because you don't save democracy unless you realize that we're all in it together, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, final question. How can we best support efforts to create change in all of these areas that we've been talking about? So I think sort of in a small, I mean, there's voting, right? I mean, if we're talking about democracy, I mean, it yep. sounds like, you know, they didn't fight as hard as, as they fought to keep us from voting because it, you know, because it doesn't matter. They fight right. to the day gerrymandering, you can't give people water. All of that is designed to keep us from voting because it is important. So that's the first clue, vote, okay? Um, but then I also think talk, talk about it, have these conversations, have the difficult conversations and not just on podcasts at the dinner table, you know, with your friends. And then when people really do stick their neck out to say something that is hard to hear, create some space around those conversations and those people because it's not easy. You know, it's not like it isn't clear to those of us who are cycle breakers and silence breakers that we will not be warmly received. And so try to be the person, even if you're not the cycle breaker or the silence breaker, to create some space and some support and scaffolding around the people that are sticking their necks up just so they can have the conversations so that we can all evolve. I love that. I mean, one of the things that I think about in the context of cycle breakers is that those of us who do it and have done it and maybe are thinking about doing it, having listened to this conversation, you know, we we heal things not just for ourselves, we heal them for our ancestors and we heal them for future generations when we step out to actually 
speak about violence and harm and white supremacy and sexual violence and all of these ways in which people are marginalized and exploited and harmed. And so I think the work of truth tellers is more important now than it has ever been. And and I am so grateful for you as one of them. This has been a great Thank joy. You. Thank you so much, Drew Thank Dixon, you. for joining us, um, for being who you are. Thank and you. you know, I texted you after I finished watching the film and said, gosh, I just hope you know your own bravery and your own courage because um, I mean, it. go watch the documentary on the record to all of our listeners. Um, follow Drew Dixon on social media. She's Dear Drew Dixon on Twitter. And, um, and so much gratitude to you, my friend. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Gratitude to you right back. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us this week. And as we process this great conversation with Drew Dixon, I want to invite you this week to think about how you may be a cycle breaker, how you may be a silence breaker. And I want to express gratitude to everyone who has done that and is seeking to do it and is trying to do it every day. The process of breaking intergenerational trajectories of harm is not easy, and the cost of doing that for most of us is quite high. And yet, as Drew points out, until we choose to do that, both for our ancestors and for the generations that come next, we'll continue to replicate cycles of abuse and harm. So here's to the cycle breakers and the silence breakers, and those with brave hearts who choose to tell the truth. Here's to Drew Dixon and every woman who stands beside her to create a future safe from harm. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, Head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at NewsletterWithECM.Substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.